Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Irina Mostayatso. She manages a customer success team. She's been in post sales for 11 years, and she's come across some very interesting stories, which we're going to explore. And she also runs a high performance coaching business as a side gig. Many of you will be thinking about or already have a side gig. Today, we're going to be talking about how you can get more joy out of your life and your work. And we're going to look at how you can separate your identity from your roles. Who you are that is not defined by the work that you do, the roles that you fulfill as a mother, a daughter, a son, a father, a brother, a golfer. If you're into something kinky, that's a role. It, it makes no difference. The, the reality is that all of these role functions are not who you are. They're just part of your being. Now, the key is to be able to separate the two, because if you suffer from role bleed and it affects your identity and who you feel, that will suck the joy out of your life. So we're going to focus on the mistakes that we make. Are, are we looking at the wrong end of the problem? Am, am I focusing too much on selling rather than facilitating buying? Am I waiting for the perfect conditions to make a decision? Or do I need to take a leap and you know, take the risk that I might fail? Or am I sacrificing my future because of procrastination? Am I finding ways to self-sabotage because of that inner voice that's telling me that I'm not worthy or who am I to? We're going to look at blind spots. We're going to look at the questions that you should be asking, but you're not. So without any further ado, Irina, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marcus. I've never had the word kinky used in my description, so I absolutely love it. <laughs> um, Did I read you right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. High performance customer success. If you're into something kinky, just tune in and listen to this episode. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. It's such a pleasure to be spending my afternoon with you. Could you As give you us a couple of minutes on your history? Yeah, definitely. So I've been in, in SaaS businesses post-sales for the last 11 years. I've been managing account management teams, client services, and for the last probably five years, focusing more on customer success. So a lot focused on value, ROI, retention. But as you probably also see that pretty much every company that starts with customer success being solely focused on retention, eventually they will have a role in growth as well. And there will be a target for expansion and cross-sales and upsells. So that's my responsibility. That's what I do during the day. And then mornings, evenings, and weekends, I run my coaching business. I, I always say that I'm a high-performance coach on a quest to empower, inspire, and encourage people to achieve their wildest professional and personal goals, but from a place of self-love and joyful living. I think anyone can achieve high performance, but to do it with a smile and not go through burnout when you, for you to get there, I think that's what true success is defined by. And that's what I'm trying to help my clients reach. Absolutely. And in fact, I've interviewed a number of my clients and uh, one of them in particular runs the channel for a large and successful tech company. And she has two kids, six years and three years old. Um, and she's managing to do that job successfully in eight hours a day. Yeah. And you should be able to do that. And more importantly, she does everything and she turns up in life and in work with joy. And you know what? That might be the key why she's so successful at what she's doing. The fact that she has these 
roles in her life so well distributed. So, okay, I know that I need to be a partner to my husband. I have the two kids that are waiting for me to show up as a mother. And I have this job where I have my commitment and responsibility. Having that clarity, but also wanting to enjoy the process of having those roles in your life. That's what makes her really good. Uh, absolutely. And uh, it started with the discipline of calendar blocking. Oh. <laughs> simple, simple action of segmenting your time and protecting it. So let's get stuck into some of the real issues here. Let's define what you mean by joy. Whenever clients ask me this, I say, okay, there are two things that I'd like you to understand about joy. First of all, joy is, and I just had balloons, by the way, coming all over my face now. Um, joy is an intangible feeling, but it is caused by a series of tangible things. In other words, if you have access to those tangible things, which are people, places, activities, or things around you that bring you joy, as long as you can access those tangible things, you will be able to create this intangible feeling. So that's like important to know. The second part is that joy is a, is a very high intensity, a form of a positive emotion. Happiness is usually measured over the long term, but joy is about the right now. It's when you have that feeling of wanting to smile or laugh or just jump up and down. Joy is this high intensity feeling. So now that you know this, it's very easy to understand that joy is actually, you don't have to find joy. You create joy. You start by identifying who are those people that uh, make me more energized when I leave them than drain my energy. What are those activities that bring me joy? Maybe it's a, you love cycling or maybe that 20 minute walk during your lunchtime. Maybe it's talking to your best friend on your way to work, those five minutes before you get into the office and you have that just connection, soul connection. Maybe it's things. You have your perfect mug that you absolutely love having your frothy cappuccino in. These are the little elements that it's so easy for us to take them for granted and almost live life without acknowledging them. But there's so many. Now that is really interesting because it sparked a thought in me, which is all of those are about attachment. and attachment tends to be a route into the drama triangle and misery. However, what I'm hearing here is a positive use of attachment to get you into the moment, to be present. And therein lies the difference. So that's very interesting because the, the winner's triangle is really about being fully present, being vulnerable, being caring, and being assertive as opposed to being sucked into the drama triangle, which is the victim, the persecutor, the rescuer, and finding yourself being very brittle, envious, angry, judgmental. Whereas instead, you're taking responsibility. The one thing I would take issue with, and, I'm and we have to listen to the language we use, is you said, people who make you feel energized. And that is putting the onus on an extrinsic factor mm. instead of the choice. So again, I think joy is something you manufacture yourself and it's how you choose to respond. You can abdicate responsibility and make it a reaction. And more often than not, those are our heuristics. Those are our old bad patterns. Both of our favorite questions is if all you can do to improve is subtract, what would you stop doing? immediately? What would you delegate? What would you do less of? What would you outsource? Well, more often than not, 
it's not that you have to do more and you have more to learn. It's that you have to shed the baggage, this um, the um, brittle armor that you've built up, the filters, the biases. So let's dig into that because this has really got me very interested. Let's um, do it. The analogy that I feel like it's such a powerful visual is the hot air balloon analogy of you can pump as much fire and force to get you up in the air. However, at the end of the day, you might burn yourself out. But when you start dropping the weights of the hot air balloon, that's when you have a liftoff. And like, oh, it's such an easy analogy to just represent that sometimes you need to delegate, subtract, eliminate, remove things from your life to actually take you to the next level of success or yeah, romantic love, whatever you want it to be. So I would start with, I like challenging my clients uh, to uh, do an energy uh, journal uh, for like two weeks and then come back to me. And I always ask them to like write the activity that they're engaged in. And then there are two columns, energy and then engagement. So I want them to score that activity by from one to five, how much energy that uh, activity gave me. One being mm, not that much, five being like, oh my God, I love doing that. And engagement from one to five, one being I almost fell asleep. Five being, I felt so engaged. I really felt like I could bring my best self to this conversation, to this task. Once you have the data after two weeks, it is so easy to see what completely drains you as an individual. Where are you not engaged? What doesn't give you energy? And that's when we start looking at how can we eliminate some of those things? So you have more time for the good things. I'm stealing that. (laughs) that's really brilliant that's lovely you need to learn how to calibrate what your body is telling you because your gut your brain evolved out of your gut evolutionarily you know we evolved from tubular worms and Mm -hmm. they had a gut that gut then evolved into a nervous system which evolved into a primitive brain and so on And that gut feeling that you get, when you learn to calibrate it and you learn to understand it, that's three billion years of evolutionary hardwiring that you can enlist as your ally Mm. instead of trying to fight it. I mean, seriously, people, don't be so bloody stupid. (laughs) But it's also don't make your life harder by constantly putting yourself in positions where you just complicate your your date your life i have this um i work with a, a an entrepreneur a founder and we were talking on wednesday he felt like he lost his drive for his company it's like i started this company because i wanted to have an impact on the world and i'm completely i lost it i lost the fire and i feel like my team is feeling this and it almost feels like i'm a hypocrite how can i make my team feel inspired by our vision when i am not inspired by the vision so we started creating this homework of like, okay, engage, engagement and energy. And we realized that he he was saying, had this aha moment of, he said that he hates, it drains him to run the leadership meetings. So when he has to host the leadership meeting and doing through, going through like pipeline and forecasting and budgeting. And we're trying to see if it's hosting meetings that drains him. He said, no, oh my God, no. Because on Friday, when we have a a huddle with the whole team, and it's usually we share the good, the, the good news and the wins of the week. I love hosting that meeting. So like, okay, it's like then <laughs> how, like, how can we delegate? How do we 
empower someone else in your team to host that leadership meeting. It's not rocket science. You can you can help someone, they can like someone can shadow you and they will start learning how to host that meeting. And then you stick doing that Friday meeting which you as a founder should bloody love to do it. You love it already. Let's do more of that. And it's a, such little things. A great book and it's dead easy read. It's 20 minutes on the lavatory is death by me by Patrick Lencioni. And the question he asks is this why are your meetings not as exciting as going to a blockbuster movie that you've been excited to go and see? Well, how do you turn your leadership meetings into learning exercises where people come out energized? How do you turn them into a forum where uh, you fight like cat and dog constructively towards the objective against the problem in unity how do you create the conditions where people come out feeling like they've been heard and have a voice and want to contribute so that you tap into the creative juices of your entire leadership team instead of you being a pain in the ass misery bottleneck? If you're feeling like this, most likely the other people in the meeting are feeling the same thing. So they're all desperately miserable, being miserable on the inside, just hoping that someone will speak up to change the format of the meeting but you just think that if no one is saying anything, you continue just as it is because we always had the same agenda. So why, why challenge it? But secondly, just from a cost benefit perspective, that is one of the most expensive meetings that you have as an organization. You have the best brains in the company and you have it like more often than not. Those meetings are the, I don't know, the driest non-action driven maybe meetings. And again, it's uh, not for me to generalize. But it is unfortunate how many times I hear people complaining about the quality of their exec meetings or exec offsites, senior leadership meetings. And it's a pity. There's so much that can be done. Empower your people, empower your team to come up with ideas on how to create more value out of that meeting. But Irina, for someone to do that, they have to be willing to be vulnerable enough to put themselves in a position where they can be challenged. Now, let's be honest about it. The middle management layer has been made up of people who've largely been tapped on the shoulder because they were a good individual contributor and they got promoted into a role that is 180 degrees away from being an individual contributor. You now have to be a team player and your job is to get everyone over the line together by the end of the quarter or the end of the year. That means that you have to spend your time not on being a supervisor and a bully and shouting and screaming and pounding your chest. It means that you have to try and empower people so that they can do the work and you're no longer a bottleneck. So let's talk about how managers and leaders can bring some joy to their own lives by getting out of the way. <laughs> the funny thing is that that's pretty much how I started my coaching business. I kept on seeing in all the tech companies that I work that you would promote really, really powerful, strong people. And then you promote them. And then three months later, they are the most depressed, low morale, demotivated employees. Like, how did it go from you being the buzzing individual that was smashing like quotas and targets and everything? And now you're so low. And I think that part of just really focusing on, I don't even want to say leadership training because it, there's so much more that there's mentoring, leadership, coaching that you have to give. You really have to treat first-time leaders differently than any other uh, leaders. I think it starts with that. Really spend time with those first-time leaders more than you would spend with anyone else promoted into a leadership position. You have to almost like help them understand that it's a completely new mindset that they also have to be responsible for. I remember in customer success, and I'll get back to your question about joy in a second, by the way, but I remember in customer success, pretty much every time 
an individual contributor was promoted to a, a leadership position, they were inundated by client escalations, firefighting nonstop, and they weren't used to it because they were saying, well, when I was an individual contributor, I had good clients and maybe challenging clients. As a manager, all I see is just the fires and the escalations. Where's the good? Pretty sure we have happy clients. Where are they? And I do it. I have it as my mission that I challenge my team to give me for like every challenging customer. I was like, come with two case studies as well, because I need to protect my brain as well, my sanity. We deliver incredible software for our clients. Why do I only hear about escalations? Like, give me the good things as well. So even that as an example. That then raises this question of a business being a system, because the idea, I mean, you've got fabulous software. We obviously work together with your company, but you've got this great software. So somewhere along the value chain further up, something has gone wrong. Either you have attracted the wrong people into your marketing funnel and they have made it all the way through to the end because no one focused on the customer. What they focused on was the transaction. And then at the end of that chain of abuse is CS who then has to pick up the pieces because a 3% click-through rate and a 15% conversion means we failed to generate the revenue we intended from those adverts 99.9955% of the time, which is 3% times 15%. Do the maths on your own calculator. Then we throw those over the fence to sales and they have to follow up. Typically at this point in November 2023, it's roughly six to 11 follow-up calls for a warm inbound just to have an effective. For a cold lead, it's 33 to 46. And that was a 2018 data from 80 million cold calls. Efficacy rate has dropped by at least 70% in those uh, that intervening period. So that's a lot of dials you have to make. And if they're the wrong ones that you're never going to close, that's an opportunity cost and you're just incurring admin. But it gets worse because if you sell to the wrong people because your salespeople are desperate and they strong arm, coerce, lie, omit in order to get the deal over the line and they discount in order to try and bribe the buyer. And then they're not a great fit because they haven't really looked at their fit within the entire ecosystem of the customer's business. Then CS gets that. And now you've got a bunch of tickets and a bunch of people who are unhappy. And you've got three years of having them grumble and complain and tying you up instead of working on high value activity. Now, that affects the bottom line. That affects shareholders. And the shareholders created the decision because out of all of the money that comes from VC and private equity, 40% of it goes into the pockets of Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And in 2018, 3.4 quadrillion digital adverts received only one click and generated $285 billion worth of revenue for those three megalithic organizations. This year, it's forecast to be $800 billion on adverts that get one click in total, of which only 3% statistically will convert. Someone is making a lot of money because someone at the top of the food chain is not thinking. Simple. Stop doing that stupid stuff and that ripple effect through your organization stops. Well, sorry, but I'm just listening to all these numbers and I think I just got overwhelmed by just by hearing how grand the whole scheme uh, is. What I would say, and this is not me bragging about my company, 
But there is something that we're doing really well at Tipalti, and that is we've introduced so many more touch points with the post-sales teams within the sales cycle that really, really protects us from that selling to the wrong customer, having the wrong ICP, getting desperate deals over the line. Of course, we're not perfect and discounts are offered and end of quarter deals happen. But in all honesty, from all the tech companies that I worked for, there is something quite special that Tipalti does that, again, this is not, this is my part of numbers, but we have 99% retention rate. We have less than 1% churn. This is the only SaaS company that I work for that has that number. Like we churn less than 1%. That's incredible for SaaS. That is way above. So when in the buyer's journey does CS get involved in the conversation with the customer? So it's negotiation stage once commercials, everything are have been shared. And it's not necessarily CS, it's more management level. So I would be the one. And again, not for all deals, because I definitely, like part of my role is occupied by the existing customer base, but for larger uh, deals where we do want to make sure that this is, we're investing the right resources in this deal. We want to make sure that the client also bought in just as much as we are. So it's at the final stage, probably like 80% like throughout the sales cycle. That's where we come in. Interesting. I'd be curious, what are your thoughts? Because in some of the companies I've been working with, we've been bringing the person who is likely to be their CS account manager in early in the sales cycle, often second meeting. So they, yeah, because again, people buy from people, the, the relationship of having the CS there to be able to answer the questions as a technical subject matter expert and having a plan in order to ensure that the difficult questions that coming out of the mouth of a salesperson would be treated with resistance. But coming out of the CS mouth, based on a common problem that people have when they're uh, onboarding with Tipalti is this, and it's typically caused by filter, filter, filter. Now, if that's going to happen, then this is what's going to happen to the project. And I, I would suggest that we don't do it. Now, Boom, your clothes goes through the roof. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to say I agree with everything. I was like, but the final part, it is so important to um, be very mindful how you communicate this because it is very easy to be brought into a room by an account executive excited to sell. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the CSM just says, I would not recommend this then. So there are always ways to communicate this and think, as you said, almost foreseeing the objections that might happen or the concerns, the red flags that we see for an account. It's so important to cover them pre-sales because we're saying we've seen companies like you, similar industries. These three areas were maybe challenging for them, the data of their payees, the vendors that they had to onboard. We recommend you take time on having your data cleaned up and then let's see your almost like implementation readiness, your onboarding readiness. So there's a nuanced way of, calling out the red flags, but still working in a collaborative way to say, we would like to address this before you sign. The second biggest thing, but advantage of having CS involved before, is that also for every customer that has a bit of that buyer remorse once they sign and they're like, oh, I had this strong relationship with the AE and all of a sudden the AE goes, okay, well, you signed, you're now with the onboarding team or implementation or launch. You at least have that face that you've seen Whoever is going to be your CSM, you've seen that face before you sign. So it's that continuity that really helps. 
if you're selling big ticket, enterprise, strategic, high impact solutions, there are going to be many stakeholders. The implications of getting it wrong are significant and could be fatal for their career, if not for the business. Many jobs are at risk. And we have a responsibility as sellers to understand that. They don't care about the transaction. They're not buying your software. They're not buying your product. They're not buying your service any more than anyone has ever bought coaching or training or mentoring from me. That's the means to their outcome. And they rent the outcome. They don't buy it outright. They only rent it for as long as it's fit for purpose, which means that we need to stay in constant contact. The best data, I guarantee it, will be in your customer success calls. Customer success speaks to customers six to eight hours a day. Salespeople, SDRs speak them around three minutes a day, according to the connect and sell data. The AEs spend a fraction, maybe 6% of their working week in front of the customer. Time in front of the customer is a real measure of success, a probability of people hitting their quota. But we're not gathering the information from the horse's mouth, from the customer. The customers will tell you how to sell to them. Customer interviews will tell you how to sell to them, upsell, get into their ecosystem, be referred, cross-sold. But no, what do we do? We go cold. We go direct and we try and convince people instead of enlisting them. What I started doing, and it's something that has such a huge success, is, um, as you said, as customer success team, we talk to the customers nonstop. And what I ask the team is, sure, we have those success criteria that we get from their the notes from the account executive, like what are they buying for? What's the ROI? How are they going to measure value? But I always challenge my team to just go the next step of asking your champion, what is their job description? What is that person targeted on? And how does our tool and our software make them more successful at their job? I always want us to somehow contribute to my champion's next promotion or <laughs> upskilling or anything. So I'm like, that person, look at the person, not the job. Understand what will make them better at the job throughout our software with the help of our software. That's number one. Number two, I look at recordings of my team's uh, calls with customers. Whenever I hear a snippet of a customer pretty much just either giving us a great testimonial or an endorsement of, oh, I saved 10 hours a week with your tool because it now automates some of the processes that were manual. I send that snippet to our enablement lead and I say, use that in your next sales training. I hear the customers say what the value was. Not what we pitch in our decks and marketing collateral and everything. Hear what this customer just said about how we improved their life. We use them in, in trainings and in sales kickoffs. I use recordings of customers, calls with the CSMs, and we use that to funnel back all that information. And it's a beautiful feedback loop that we have. And this is the key about creating alignment across the revenue function. And anyone or anything that touches the customer needs to start with some deep thought. We need to begin to think as the customer and work out from there. What is the outcome? the better future they are trying to create for themselves. If we can help them to do that, we have their attention. How do we help them get promoted? I mean, how many salespeople are asking the question, Irina, tell me something. If we work together, I want you to be successful. So tell me, if this delivers what we promised, how will that help you advance your career and move you towards a promotion? What else can I do in order to make that possible. I want to be their ally. I want them to know that they have 
that I have their back and I'll take a bullet for them if I have to. And again, I would say that you, you just use the words, I'll take a bullet for them if I have to. And it might sound so dramatic for some people, but that's exactly the mentality. Go all in, just connect human to human, do business with people and understand what that person needs and wants and how can you contribute to their life? Of course, it sounds maybe a bit poetic, but that's truly where good business comes from, when you really interact and connect with your, with your customers. And the science behind this is interesting. Daryl Stickle did his PhD in high conflict environments and creating trust. Uh, he came up with this beautiful formula, which is vulnerability times uncertainty equals perceived risk. <laughs> now, all of us have a risk threshold under which we're okay taking a decision, and that is a risk. So we understand that if we take that risk, we may lose some or all of what we've got, but we're okay with that. Mm. The moment we step over that threshold, our brain defaults to the worst case scenario. We go into chicken little, the sky is falling. And the problem is that so much of the dogmatic religious uh, zealotry around playbooks, around following a sales methodology, around following medic or Sandler or whatever, doesn't actually adhere to the way the brain works or how buyers actually behave in reality. You know, Sandler was a fantastic system in its day, and it was built on eternal principles, how human beings behave. And David Sandler was 56 years ahead of the neuroscience. Unfortunately, the way most people use any strategy or any technique is they tend to use it as a weapon, not as a way of building a bridge, as a shield. And buyers need to feel safe, especially now, and back to our formula, the one thing you do have control over is how much uncertainty you create in your buyer's brain. You're not selling to the buyer even, you're selling to their brain, which is stuck in a box. And it's trying to make sense of the world through its five or six senses, if you're thinking about intuition. And it's looking for threats. It's sensing whether or not you are a threat to their survival. And anything that we do that triggers them beyond that risk threshold goes into anticipated buyer's remorse. They're thinking, imagining what will go wrong if I buy from this person. And this information is there in the customer success data. But our intent has to be right. We have to be there, not trying to sell, not trying to convince. It's trying to understand and genuinely have a transfer of emotion. What, what is it they feel? What is it they fear? What is it they want? How do I give them that? How do I help them do that? Then I'm their ally. I'm not their enemy. I'm not their uh, accomplice. You said, do I feel confident to buy from this person? You didn't even say company. You said no. person. And that's yeah. exactly it. And I feel like we keep on missing that. Well, we, this element is being missed because what's happening is even I, like I look at AEs who have a successful, the prospects that they brought along, they've re renewed. They're like with us for years uh, ahead now. It's where the customer really felt understood and there was a partnership built from the beginning. 
But also, the AE also believe that we can offer value. I think the saddest thing is that when I see AEs who five minutes ago in the kitchen complain about the product being too slow, too buggy, too this, and then you're trying to sell. Like, but you will exude that. You get reflected back what you project out. It really, really is. And I think people keep forgetting this, that you have to trust that what you're selling is valuable. You go with a glimpse of doubt your prospects will feel it. You feel it. Like I remember that in my coaching business, the moment that I got desperate in signing someone, oh, it repelled the people. Coaching is such a a human to human interaction. You want to work with someone who, A, you, there's chemistry a little bit, but B, you actually feel confident in that person's ability to help you. The moment that there's a sniff of desperation or I feel that Irina really needs to close this, it puts off. No one will sign. The moment that I come relaxed in a prospect and a discovery call, I have a 100% success rate. People want to work with people who, yeah, they, they believe in the power of them delivering. I came up with a model for a CRO community that I'm working with. And it's basically a triangle. And down one side, you have revenue. At the bottom, you have strategy. And on the other side, you have relationship. And then you ask the question, so um, what's your top priority? And they always say revenue. Okay, so what are the things that you have control over, the inputs? And then they tell you. And so Mm -hmm. what is it you measure? Well, they measure all the wrong things. Mm -hmm. They measure the stuff that gives um, leadership a sense of uh, control, which is illusory. Um, And uh, they focus on the stuff that is selfish and short term. They don't focus on the stuff. And so, uh, you know, the, the big issue here is that because of what they measure, it also drives the behavior and it also drives the purchase decisions. And we've seen it in tech. It's an arms race. You bought Gong, so I bought uh, Chorus. You bought Clary, so I bought Ebster. You bought Lavender, blah, 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 blah. So what happens is you've got this massive turnover of staff because they're focused on the revenue and it's a miserable experience. People are selling stuff that they don't really understand because they've not focused on the human side, the relationship side, or the strategy, which means that they can work less and get more done and make more money and do more interesting work, because that's what people want to do. But instead, we turn the environment into a shithole, and we make it miserable, and then we blame the people who are at the coalface suffering because of acts of idiocy and decisions made right at the top. You said environment, and I think that's such a, a, again, a keyword because I, in a previous company that I worked for, it was dangerous how I saw conversations about KPIs happening at a senior leadership level. We were building our KPIs in order to drive the right behaviors, which was good. That makes sense. But then we're adding more KPIs because we wanted to make sure that everything that we needed from the team to do has to be converted into a KPI which that I have a problem with because you do not need a KPI in order to ask for the right behaviors from your team. Sure, you will have a handful of key metrics that you want to measure. But if I want my team to be adaptable and say that if halfway through the quarter we have an initiative, it's not in your bonus uh, KPI. The fact that you will deliver on that initiative will not like give you more money, but it will contribute to the organization's success. I want that team to jump on that initiative, jump on that task force, even though it's not in their KPI. And the moment that I hear people saying, but it's not in my KPI, so why should I be doing this? 
that's a cultural problem then, because that means that you have to go back to hiring and understanding who do you hire. You hire people who just need want to have a, a sheet with their matrix and they need to like make sure that they hit all those numbers. You want to hire also for character. You want to hire for all the, the values that you stand for as an organization. Again, this is why one of my big bugbears is so little attention is paid on the people who are the most important and catalytic potentially for driving really good performance, sustainable performance, uh, and creating a great environment. And it's middle managers. Jonathan Farrington's study in 2018 said that only 6% of sales managers were fit for purpose. And I don't blame the managers because typically their route to management is being tapped on the shoulder and told, Irina, bad news. We've had to fire your idiot boss. Congratulations, you're now the idiot boss. Off you go. And that's their runway. And they have to go from being an individual selfish contributor to being a team player whose job it is to get all their individual contributors to get over the line by a certain deadline. And managers only have two lines in their job description, hire the best people and create the conditions so they can do their best work every day. The third line, depressingly, is protect them from acts of idiocy from above. And that (laughs) normally includes you. Because more often than not, a manager, especially a player manager, is under pressure. And at the end of the month or quarter, they will focus on their quota. So again, no player managers. Now, we've got to stop this abuse of people. And we've got to create real, voluntary, intentional, deliberate engagement where people give discretionary effort like you describe. Now, that's very rare. A fraction of companies are able to do that. What is it that you're doing in your team to create that environment? I love that question. I'll start with the definition of how I always talk to my team about what high performance is. And like, I'm always, there are like three pillars. One, it's optimizing human performance. So we're going to look at metrics. We're going to look at KPIs. I want you to perform on those. Secondly is creating habits to ensure sustainable success. So I don't want you to like excel in Q1 and then be so burnt out that Q2 is like flop completely. But thirdly is high performance is when you also regain your drive and joy for life. If we focus on only the first two, which is usually what organizations do, they focus on push and push and challenge the team and get them motivated and pumped. But the third element, I feel like people just don't, especially leaders, they forget that they need to Make work fun as well. We spend eight, nine, 10 hours at work doing our uh, jobs. If it's constantly pressured and it's constantly boring or just monotonous or you don't feel challenged in the right way, if you rarely smile or rarely laugh or you rarely have a moment of just like being like, this just cracked me up. I cannot explain how much my belly hurts from all the laughing. That's on the leadership level. And the things that I do, they're like tactical things, but they're so, I can't even say I have a strategy. They're like little things that are embedded in my team's culture. But we start Friday with Friday wins. Every Friday morning, I need wins from the the team about three things that happened that went really well in their their week. And it can be a client win. So my client just expanded or grew or a tough renewal. But also they're like, I helped a colleague or I I made sure that I was a listening ear to a colleague that was struggling. Or it can also be, how did you contribute to culture? Like I did, I volunteered myself to run a lunch and learn session. That's a win. So in my eyes, it's not just when you upsold or you cross-sold something. It's not revenue related. It's how did you contribute to a joyful culture at, uh, at our company? 
That's Fridays. Mondays, we start our team meeting. It's very numbers driven. It's forecasting. It's looking at renewals. But if we take turns and having like a three minute, like an inspirational video, and it's not just me as a leader who I'm going to share a video. It's every individual knows that their week is coming and they prepare a little video that means something to them. It can be a funny video. It can be an inspirational video. There are such small things, but I promise you, Marcus, the amount of times that people say, well, that sounds too simple. It's just, it's not going to work. I'm like, no, but it's these little moments. I also show my team constantly that I am absolutely having the best time at my job, even in the toughest moments when I have three back-to-back challenging clients. We got a laugh. I'm like, okay, that was, I just took a beating. Whew. How are we going to turn this around? How are we going to make this a success story? Take it as a challenge whenever a client is fuming on the phone. Make that your badge of honor that you're going to turn them around. And it's that type of mentality of just, okay, today was tough. What are we going to do about it now? Always go running to the sound of gunfire and go looking for people who disagree with you and go looking for customers who are unhappy because that's where the learning comes and that's where you get to improve. And the problem is people are afraid of conflict and they don't understand the difference between destructive and constructive conflict. And they don't understand how to establish clear boundaries because they don't really understand the difference between a role and identity. And they don't know how to stay out of the drama tribe. You mentioned a run towards gunfight. That's it. I had actually a recent client is really challenging one of my CSMs, but challenging in a way that not this is going wrong or that's going wrong, more that it dem- they demand a lot. They're very demanding, enterprise account. They want a lot, they pay, they're pay. they paying a lot, they expect a lot. And I remember my CSM telling me in a one-to-one that it's really tough being their CSM. Like they're, they're really demanding. I was like, you know what? This will be the account that will grow you the most. This will be the account that you're gonna look back and say, huh, I learned strategic thinking by working with them. I've learned how to properly organize all their projects that are going in the same place, how to manage stakeholders, how to collaborate with teams across, like cross-functionally in different continents, because they are expecting that I will be doing that. So that is the account that will take it to the next level as the CSM. So you'd be grateful for that account. The more they ask from you, the more you grow. And it's just that conversation. It could have been easy for me to say, oh, I'm really sorry. Can I help? Like, should I interfere? Do you want me to maybe manage a little bit their expectations? I was like, no, no, it's hard. Go embrace it. Again, the thing I love about that leadership style is you're going to let them fail and it's okay. And you're there as support because the reality is your customers are your best teachers. If you want to get good at sales, if you want to get good at management, if you want to get good at leadership, if you want to be a good investor, learn from your customers Um, because we exist because of them, not in spite of them. They're not a pain in the ass. They're not a an unwelcome interruption in your day. They're the reason our companies exist. Our job is to serve their outcome. If we don't have that alignment and all of us working in partnership with the customer against their problem, then chances are we're going to be competing with ourselves. We're going to be working at odds with one another and holding each other back. Now, I subscribe to Carl von Clausewitz's hiring policy. When he used to hire Prussian officers, he would hire them for laziness and high intelligence, minimum effort, minimum loss of life. (laughs) Salespeople, managers, leaders, 
CS people should be the same. You need people who think their way through the problem. When I'm recruiting, one of my favorite exercises is what are the kind of questions that they're going to face in this role that they're going to have experience of facing in any other part of their life. That's more interesting and certainly more predictive than whether they've worked in banking for 10 years. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And on what you said about my team member now will feel safe to fail because they know that they'll be able to come into one-to-one with me saying, Irina, I completely fucked up. This is what I've learned. This is what I know I'll do differently next time. Sorry, but I wanted to maybe stretch myself or push myself or see. That's perfect. I want to hear that. My previous VP, I remember I had a performance review and one of the questions, he just asked me, when was your last mistake? I kind of like thought, I thought, I'm like, haven't done one in a while. I was like, Ooh, I am not sure I like that answer because you're in your comfort zone then. Sure, you have all these enterprise accounts and you're not making any mistakes. I'm not sure I'm enjoying hearing this. I'm like, I thought that I answered really well. Like, you're not, you're not making mistakes. What are you doing? You're sleeping. Like, okay, then <laughs> let's do this. And I think that, it, A, it's an uncomfortable conversation. Like, are you pushing me to make mistakes? Like, I don't want customers to churn. It's like, no, no. <laughs> but mistakes that... You just take it up a notch. In your next QBR, try something new. Try something. See how it lands. Always, of course, think with the cut, like customer-centric, customer front of mind. But try to push yourself. And 100% agree. The one qualification I would say is that you don't practice in front of your customer. You rise to the level of your practice and preparation You don't rise to the level of your talent. You fall to the level of your practice, training, and preparation. And the key here is if you're going to take those risks, then you need to prepare them. One of my favorite exercises is red teaming because it's the hardest time you will ever have selling because it's you plus one partner. They're on the white team and their job is to defend the opportunity. Everyone else in your team Their job is to tear it to pieces. I love that. You've lived through the worst experience that you're going to. So anything the customer throws at you, you've already prepared. You've got a response that is a choice. You've got positive, neutral, negative. You've got them being expansive with their responses or closed mouthed. You know, you've practiced all these different scenarios. You've thought about their objections. You've thought about it through the lens of the CFO, the decision-making committee. You've looked at you know, all of these things. Now, this is where CS can really come in, but also executives. Why are we not bringing legal in? Why are we not bringing our cybersecurity specialists in? Why are we not bringing our contract specialists in? Why are we not bringing marketing in? And marketing speaking to marketing, CEO to CEO. Well, this kind of executive involvement, just like we were talking earlier about bringing CS in early, that really makes a difference. Now, the problem is executives often say, yeah, we'll be there. And I was just on a call today with um, somebody and he managed to close the deal, but he was over in Saudi and he teed it up so that the CEO would be on the other end of the line and said, look, my CEO would love to talk to you. He dials and he's not there. And then he dials again, 10 minutes later, and he's not there. And he still managed to get the deal. But the way we do one thing is the way we do everything. And you are known by the promises you keep, not the ones you make. And in leadership, 
you not keeping your word, especially when a salesperson is in front of a customer, and it's a big deal. It was the biggest deal that the company had ever done, and he doesn't show, and he never even mentioned it. I'm sorry, but first of all, well done for your <laughs> for your uh, a client that he, he sold the deal. What I would also add is, before you wait for executives to help you and other functions to help you, what you said about red teaming, I actually never heard of it and I love it and I'm going to use it as well. But you know what it requires for someone to be able to do that is to leave your ego at the door and actually mm-hmm. be vulnerable with your colleagues to say, kill this op, let me defend it. That takes a lot of vulnerability and discomfort and growth mindset. Don't know Absolutely. how many have it because we do want to think about ourselves that we are the smartest person in the room and we do know the prospect the best and we know the op and we know why it'll close and we know the all the why buys and everything. It's hard to leave the ego and allow yourself to be in that position where people challenge your op. All of my coaching clients now have access to four two-hour rehearsal practice sessions where we do this red teaming, so where cool. we take moments. So people don't screw up the whole thing. They they mess up a moment. It might be 30 seconds. It might be um, their voice cracks when they talk about the price rise or they're dealing with someone who's significantly more senior than them and they're having these worries about whether they're worthy and all this other rubbish. And you know they're struggling with parity or whatever. In 35 years, I have never yet come across an original objection I've never come across an original request for information. And I've never come across an original scenario where a buyer throws something at you. I've had one vaguely original objection, which was a lie. This was a Sikh shopkeeper telling a salesperson who sold a barter exchange that as an Indian shopkeeper, he doesn't barter. (laughs) Now, I don't think this is racist. I think this is um, the fact that this individual salesperson was having the piss ripped from him for his total lack of cultural awareness. And the shopkeeper must have been wetting himself with laughter. Because that, in all of my time, and I've worked across over 500 market segments, selling everything from aircraft carriers to naked platters, (laughs) specialism to software, and everything in between, And not once have I ever heard an original objection other than that. And it wasn't an objection. It was just a way of getting the idiot out of the shop. (laughs) You know that right now, my next role play with my team will be, well, as a Moldovan individual, we do not uh, accept deals on the 15th of the month. So we cannot, (laughs) like, I I can't wait now to just throw these banners of, well, (laughs) where's your cultural awareness? (laughs) And this is the point. Again, I think we need to practice (laughs) so our limbic system and our brains are prepared for these shocks. So again, practice dealing with a hostile buyer and staying calm and understanding them so that you neutralize their anger and you redirect their anger towards something positive. Learning that skill in a safe environment and practicing it and practicing and practicing until you master it, that's gold. But the reason training does not work is learning the material is pointless because 99% of it you forget. And when you're in front of the customer, you don't apply it because you revert back to what you learned first unless you replace the neural pathways and you habituate the new behavior. 
But again, one other final point I'll shut up is you cannot motivate anyone either. Motivation is an internal force. So for God's sake, stop with the shit on your job descriptions, must be able to motivate a team. <laughs> motivation is about understanding someone's motivation and finding a way to utilize that as a way to drive the behavior that you want and drive the behavior you don't want out. Find their reason for buying, find their reasons for giving discretionary effort. You were just talking, I was like, I could see how this can apply to so many people in, in my team. I'm like, oh, I have to work on, on some elements. So I, uh, you made me really pensive now in the final minutes. Okay, well, let's talk about this then for the last couple of minutes. If you could wave a magic wand and solve that one problem, what would be the one thing that you would choose to fix in the next 30 days? State the problem in one sentence. Just you state them, the problem. You want I them want... to be able to do that. No, no, no. I want. I'm asking you. Like, state the problem. We've had a long conversation, so I'm just wondering what is the problem we're trying to fix. I'm trying to understand what is the one thing that, by the end of this call, if you could work out how to fix it, it would be a bloody great win for you. I'm trying to give you that. So tell me, what's the one thing that, if you could wave a magic wand and make that problem at least break the back of it in the next 30 days, what would you pick? We didn't even touch upon this, but it's such an important factor. But I always talk about discipline being the bridge between your goals and your results. Mm -hmm. And we have all these people having their, their goals and everything. They're like, I'm motivated and I'm driven and I'm ambitious. And then it's the end of the year, the end of the quarter. And those results do not necessarily represent all that motivation that happened at the beginning of the, the year. And I always talk about how discipline is that carriage is that wagon the 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 vehicle that will get you there so discipline okay i'm going to challenge that let's do it okay they're motivated they're driven they're capable but they're not producing mm. what's the question they should be asking that they're not a couple come to mind a <laughs> how do i make it easier how mm -hmm. do i make this what i need to do easier then it comes with more fun I don't want to be dreading the journey to my goals, to my results. How do I create a system of accountability around me? Because you don't want to be alone in your pursuit of your results. You want to arm yourself with people who will keep track of your progress, who will keep you accountable. Accountability is something that I talk so much about. Motivation is not enough. Build an accountability uh, system around you. So I guess these three would be my questions for them. How do I make it easier? How do I make it more fun? And how do I build a good accountability process? When you asked your team those three questions, what did they say? When I talk about easy, I just see them struggling so much with all these. I love it on one side that I have all these personalized interactions with customers. But then I'm thinking, if we are to gather all the questions that you're answering to our customers, I'm sure that they're pretty much like the same. Let's create an FAQ. How do you make that easier? How do you not reinvent the wheel every time? Have you More created a frequently unasked questions list? the questions they should be asking, but they're not. And using that as a way of creating a gap, a point of difference between Tipalti and all the others in your space, and as a way of filtering out the non-ICP prospects who could buy but won't or shouldn't buy because they'll be disappointed. And then they don't ever enter the top of the funnel. They filter out. That one thing can increase production and capability by 500%.
And we need to look at the metrics as well. But to your question, if the real issue here is, well, why am I not generating the outcome? What am I, what am I doing on a day-to-day basis? What am I measuring? Is what I'm measuring serving me? And more often than not, they're not because they're really audit questions and they're to give the illusion of control to management and leadership and finance, not to help the seller or the CS. So what am I measuring? Why am I measuring it? And how does that serve me in doing the job better? If it doesn't, then it's no longer my responsibility to measure it. If leadership want it, let them try and work out how to measure it. Don't waste a moment of my time doing it. Automate it. You've got an IT department. You've got a bunch of finance people. Fuck off and do it yourself. Now, then they have to ask the really important question, which is, what is it I want my career to give me in life? And how am I creating my role in order to ensure that that outcome is possible? What does my plan look like? What am I able to respond to? What are the choices that I have? And what are the choices I'm currently making that are uh, delivering the result that I'm getting? One of my favorite maxims is your business is perfectly designed today to deliver exactly the results you are getting. Well, I didn't design it. Well, there you go. (laughs) Um, So if you're not designed your career, if you haven't designed your role, then chances are you are part of someone else's plan which means you have no agency and you can't whinge, bitch and complain when things don't go according to your plan that wasn't specific and you never did anything to enlist any or create any agency. You've tried to do this all on your own as if by magic through hard work, which is the stupidest thing that you can possibly do. Working harder when it's not working just means you burn out and you're really not very clever. (laughs) Take a step back. Breathe and reflect and ask a better question. A harsh truth to say that if you're working that hard and your results are still average, you might not be that clever. And I think that part is as hard as it feels to someone telling you that, um, that might be the moment for you to take a step back and reflect because whatever you're doing probably is not working. There's a book and I would, we're talking about books, but there's a book called The Alliance. Um, completely blanking on the author, but it's the the founder of LinkedIn. And he talks about the, this alliance between the company and the employee. So the employer and the employee. And what you have to, what we have to understand is that as an employee, I say, here are my skills, here are my strengths, leverage them as a business to reach your goals. But then as an organization, we have to, like the organization has to have the uh, mindset of, I have now this company of people who have their own desires of their own career and where they want to be taken. How do I contribute to their development? And when you have that alliance and you bridge that gap, that's where magic happens. And you've touched on something really crucial, which is that whether you're a leader, a manager, a seller, whether you're in CS, whether you're in a relationship with anybody, start looking for what the com- where the common ground is because you can build bridges from that. The problem that we have is for the last 50 years or so, we've created a hostile environment for the buyer. Uh, What we've tried to do is we've tried to control the buyer. We talk about client control. We talk about candidate control and recruitment. We talk about controlling the sale. 
as a buyer, as a human being, you do not want to be controlled unless you're one of the 3% who finds joy in that, Mm -hmm. in which case, by all means, and feel free to dress up in whatever latex outfit you feel. (laughs) Back to the kinky stuff. Back to the kinky stuff. (laughs) It's called a callback in comedy. Um, So again, what we're trying to do is create an environment where we enlist our buyer, where we enlist our employees, and we're working together against the problem in order to co-elevate and raise us all up. And to do that, we have to co-operate. That means we work together. That means that we co-develop an understanding of the problem. We co-develop a solution and everyone's fingerprints are all over that. Everyone's voice was voiced and they were listened to. And then we took the best in order to get the job done, not satisfy our puerile egos. Then the person who is best placed to lead steps forward and leads and everyone else steps back. And when their leadership role and time is over, it's time for someone else to step forward. They step forward and we co-elevate and lift everyone. This creates a win-win-win, a win for you, a win for your employer, a win for the customer, a win for partners. And a win-win does not mean that we compromise. It's bloody hard. A win-win means that both sides or all sides get all of their vital needs met without any compromise eventually. Mm. And that's hard. It requires patience. It does not require trying to squeeze someone into your end-of-quarter deals. Hard, but possible. I think that's so important to say. It's hard. Damn right. It's challenging, but it's possible. The more people are going to do this, the better results we're going to see, the more customer success managers, happier customer success managers we're going to see. And what I wanted to say, the nuance between when you said no buyer wants to be controlled, completely agreed. I would also layer that, but they want to be guided. So there is, I don't want to feel controlled, but I want to know that I'm talking to a thought leader and they're guiding me on how the process should look like. What are some potential solutions to my pain point? It's not necessarily called tea party, but I'm talking, I want to feel that I'm talking to a person who really understands my problem, understand that there could be a way to architecture a solution. And if that solution is my software, fantastic. If not, this is where we part our ways. But it was pain point and solution that we discussed. I wasn't selling a software. I was selling a potential answer to a problem. What was happening on the other side was they were looking for a safe pair of hands Because the decision that goes through people's heads is, if I spend my money with this company, with this individual, can I trust them to have my back? If I make that investment, will I regret it? Will I have egg on my face? Will I lose my job? Will I lose status? Because human beings are driven by certain fundamental needs. These needs are really important. And if they are not being met, and they are significant, certainty, variety, connection, growth, contribution. A lot of this is about extrinsic approval. It's about extrinsic factors. However, if you can learn to manage your understanding of and your response to those needs through finding significance intrinsically in the work that you do, being able to create a plan to drive certainty and agency, to have the variety and novelty that you need, to be connected with others, to be genuinely growing, to feel like you're developing in ways and you're becoming the person you have the potential to be, to contribute. 
it suddenly frees people up and liberates them. And what, what's really fascinating is when you do this and you put them in challenging situations, people are more engaged. And to give you a great example of the red team and this actually playing out, one of my clients was an IT support company and they were pitching for a refurb of all of their security and cabling and all this stuff for a company. The deal on the table was 300K. We red teamed it and he walked out with 3 million. Uh-huh. That's a 10x <laughs> uplift by being uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, let's be honest, for three hours. But he hit his year. I mean, he hit the company target for the year with that one deal. If three hours of discomfort is necessary for a 10x multiplication of my value deal, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and then bear in mind, there was all the services and the ongoing and the support and everything else that went with it. And that's three years of guaranteed revenue. Imagine what that does for the valuation of the business. I mean, forward orders, guaranteed, contracted, rock solid. Again, the key is when you strike a deal, a win-win deal means that all parties would sign up to the same terms without any hesitation 100 times in a row. Now, that is possible, but it takes patience. And you can't rush it, which means we need to shift our focus away from this short-term idiocy and focus on medium to long-term and think, when I prospect, I'm prospecting for a customer for life, not someone who's going to make my quota this quarter, if I'm lucky. I want to be selling to them, their kids and their grandkids. I want to be selling to every part of their organization. I want to sell to their supply chain, their joint ventures, their partners, their ecosystem. I want to sell to their alumni. I want to sell to their family tree, their overseas subsidiaries, and the customer's customer. I don't want to have to prospect cold ever again. I think I just got goosebumps, by the way, just uh, thinking about this, when you said the grandparents and the children and the nephew, the nieces, like, imagine that. And I think this is the part where our company has now an initiative of um, getting CSMs to uh, provide more referrals. Which again, it's such a good idea. Like you want your customers to refer you to other customers. But it's an uncomfortable conversation more often than not, which is strange because you're thinking, why should you be uncomfortable if the clients are happy? They're our biggest advocates. Like They should be the first ones to say, oh my God, there are like 15 other people I can refer you. Okay. okay. So that, that is a self-concept issue. It's the voice in their head saying, well, who are we to? Or, well, I need to deliver X amount of value. The reality is that almost every conversation I ever have generates three or four referrals. That means since 2004, I have never once had to pick up the phone to cold call, except when I was doing cold call boot camps and I needed to demonstrate the skill. (laughs) And the difference between a cold call and a warm call is the first eight seconds and the noise between your ears. That's it. Because the call, other than that, is identical. If you're doing it right. But let's wrap up. I mean, this has been a fascinating conversation. We haven't covered anywhere near. um, So you're coming back, whether you want to or not. So I'm fascinated here. Let's do this. What was your best mistake? Ah, The first one that comes to mind is probably not even related to everything we discussed today, Marcus, but the, uh, the most powerful one, I guess it's, it kind of like was one of the victims of the mentality of follow your passion and things will happen. So one of those victims of the pandemic in 2021, when I quit my job, I was like, enough with corporate. 
I've been doing coaching as a hobby for 10 years. Follow your passion and it'll happen. And I started my coaching business. And 10 months, I was absolutely miserable because the difference of, there's a difference between being a great coach versus running a coaching business. The hats you have to wear as a business owner are very different than the hats you have to wear just as a coach. So that was definitely, the reason why I consider it as a mistake is because I almost wanted to know that I had the brain to understand that it's going to be tough and it's not just follow your passion. Like actually make sure you have a plan. I didn't, but it was the best one because it taught me so much about myself, the resilience, the determination, what I value in life. They became so clear to me that after those 10 months, I went back to corporate. I actually always loved my job in customer success, never fell out of love with it. I just wanted to do something else. And the beauty of it is that now I have my job in corporate that I love, my career, I have my coaching business, and they're both doing, like they're booming both because I'm so happy doing both of them. And the coaching business is growing slowly, but steadily. And that's what I needed. It's not crash and burn, quit and do your thing. That was my best mistake. Excellent. Well, again, I think often accidents in your life or you know, apparent disasters in your life lead to some very great things. And so I think the key here is be open to it. I interviewed a couple who are the writers and they've written a book called Going Solo. And it's basically a blueprint to everything that you need to do to get your side gig or your uh, new business off the ground. And the other thing that I would recommend is checking out Simon Severino because his JVC program is about moving you from being an operator to an owner. Ah, okay. And uh, a lot of the work I do is in this area as well. But Simon has beautiful systems. He's got the most wonderful systems thinking brain and beautifully elegant systems to create short sprints in order to drive performance. So you move from being underwater like a turtle. And then, um, you know, he uses the metaphor of a cheetah and a, uh, a dog. So the cheetah is all very focused. And it's all about, you know, do these sprints, but then be happy like a dog and uh, go full Labrador. Um, and how do you find joy in being the owner of a business? Because it's a miserable experience, as you found, because you wear so many different hats and it's all alien and you don't know what the hell you're doing. Well, one of the best things you can do as a founder is sit on the boards of other companies. Get onto the boards of other companies. And if any of you are women, you are in minorities. If you have odd sexual orientations that are not mainstream, let's call it that. I didn't mean to say odd. Again, don't off the norm. If you have disabilities, there is a brilliant opportunity. The next 18 to 24 months, there is a hiatus because boards historically are very risk averse. And anyone who is different is seen as a threat, a risk. And they found it very hard to get onto boards. There is 21 trillion, trillion dollars that's tied up in funds that were raised around ESG by BlackRock and that sort of ilk. And they can't place the money because they don't have diverse boards because they're environmental policies, their sustainability and their governance are poor. There is an opportunity, and I'm working on a project with a number of partners, with the Institute of Directors, with the CRO Connected, uh, with a company called Veblen, on trying to flood the market with diverse board members. Because in order to get that money, they have to have diverse board members. Hmm. And this is our chance to flood the, um, flood the market. So if anyone 
would like to get onto their first board position, then please direct message me on LinkedIn or check out an organization called Veblen, V-E-B-L-E-N. And it's about creating a board apprenticeship where for six months, your job is to sit on a board and say and do nothing but observe. But you get your first board position. And when they have to raise the funding, funnily enough, you're the only one trained who knows how to raise the funding around ESG. That's so valuable. Really valuable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you for sharing, Marcus. It's a pleasure. Well, I would love you to be part of that as well, because frankly, I think you're ready. So how can people get hold of you? What's your coaching website? Yes. So the easiest way is just look me up on LinkedIn. So my name is Irina Mustatza. <laughs> the spelling will be a bit challenging, but it's I-R-I-N-A-M-U-S-T-E-A-T-A. Uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn and you'll find all the information there about services that I provide, how can I help and how can we conquer this world together? Excellent. Irina, thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. It was a joy to be with you today. Likewise. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, and then please subscribe, please tag somebody and go back and listen again and take some notes and actually take some action. So in six months time, you're experiencing real joy in your work and you're not letting your identity suffer as a result of your performance because it's going to get tough out there. But there is support. There's help from people like Irina. There's help from people like me. So if you are struggling to adapt to the new context, and maybe you were very successful pre-beginning of 2023, but you've seen your performance stagnate, then at the bottom, there's a link to my new selling aptitude test. It's a way of identifying some gaps. It compares your performance with the top 4%. If you want to lie to it, by all means do. It's not going to help you. If you do the uh, the analysis, then I will give you half an hour of my time and I'll give you feedback. If you want to talk to me about coaching after that, then great. If you don't, then that's fine too. I'm not after you as a client. What I want to do is make sure that you're prepared for what's coming. 2024 to 2032 is likely to be very tough. We need to be prepared. And I'm trying to do my bit, bit in order to create the conditions so you can thrive If you're one of my audience, chances are you're buying into my values. We're after the same thing. So enlist, help me. We're on a mission. If you can share this, then please do. And if you want to get in touch, love to hear from you. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.